Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for July 25th, 2018. On today's episode, we'll discuss the latest TV and film news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, guys, I think this is the first time in over a week that we have a normal news-filled episode of Slash Film Daily. So I guess let's just jump into it. Let's start off with Mission Impossible Fallout. Uh, it turns out this is the most expensive edition of the Mission Impossible franchise. Ben, you're at this up for the site. What do we know? Yeah, so when Tom Cruise broke his ankle filming a stunt for Mission Impossible Fallout, which is the new movie that comes out this weekend, uh, the production had to shut down for several weeks. And that hiatus ended up making this movie the most expensive Mission Impossible movie yet. Uh, apparently, the film's budget is now around $250 million, um, largely because of that uh, hiatus break that they had to take there. And uh, according to The Hollywood Reporter, uh, the reason for the, um, the, the, I guess, addition is that the biggest added cost for Fallout was paying the cast and crew for the eight-week hiatus so they wouldn't take another job. So it, it's not like they did costly reshoots or anything, which is often what we hear about um, you know, when, when movies take big hiatuses like this. Uh, so that didn't happen. But yeah, just the idea that their, their key star during a, uh, an injury that happened on the set um, having to necessitate the shutdown means that the uh, the budget boosted pretty high. So I guess uh, insurance is going to be covering a good percentage of this because, like I said, this happened on set. It was during the production. So, um, but even you know, offsetting the insurance's uh, I guess uh, con- contributions to <laughs> how this whole thing is going to shake out, the total is going to be closer to somewhere like 180 million, and even that is still more expensive than uh, Rogue Nation and all of the other movies in the Mission Impossible franchise. Yeah, to give you an idea, 250 million dollars is a lot. Uh, you know, Avatar, which was made what in. Th- 2009 at this point uh was made for 237 million dollars so less money than mission impossible fallout uh but yeah taking out all all that um what did you say it went down to 180 
Yeah, approximately 180 is the is the reported budget, according to a source uh, who who spoke with Hollywood Reporter. So that's like on par with like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. So that, that's still a lot of money. Uh, but let's move on. Uh, speaking of Marvel movies, let's move on to Ant Man and the Wasp. It turns out that film was originally going to have a Captain America cameo. Uh, Chris, tell us about it. Uh, yeah, so according to director Peyton Reed, there was originally a, uh, a plan for Luis, the character played by Michael Pena, to uh, retell you know the events of the, the famous tarmac fight in Captain America's Civil War. And during, you know, that, whole, you know, if you if you've seen the the Ant-Man movies, you know, these scenes play out where Michael Pena is talking very fast and we get to see recreations of things that already happened with his voice coming out of other actors mouths. And it's very funny. And according to Michael, uh, according to Peyton Reed, they were going to have one of these moments with um, Chris Evans is Captain America. But in the end, they decided to cut it because they wanted um, Ant-Man and the Wasp to be its own standalone thing, which I, I know it makes sense. But I really wish this had happened because I'm sure it would have been very funny. Yeah, I, I need more stories from Luis uh, in, in this movie. It, it is interesting that that first Ant-Man movie, um, you know, Edgar Wright split from Marvel because of, you know, uh, creative differences. And a lot of those creative differences had to do with Marvel wanting to tie it in t- t- to the MCU further by having like cameos and character appearances. And it, it just seems like this time around, it was all about making it standalone. Um, but... Yeah. Anyways, uh, let's move on to our, our next uh, next topic, which uh, is a, a research team has claimed to have discovered the formula for box office success. So apparently there's an algorithm out there that can guarantee studios make their money back. Uh, ben, uh, we should be investing in this, right? <laughs> I mean, I feel like if it was that simple, Hollywood would have already figured this out. But uh, some researchers at the University of Birmingham in the UK, um, a professor of behavioral economics and data science specifically, led these this effort to categorize over 6,000 movie scripts uh, using algorithms into six defined types of emotional stories. And you can read i broke it down on on this in this article that you can find at slashfilm.com so i'm not going to go through all of it but but basically what they came up with was this man in the whole uh emotional story this categorization which is defined by yeah give us some examples of this what is the man in the hole it's basically the fall followed by a rise so the fall of a character followed by the the uh, i guess overcoming of an obstacle from that character of that character uh they said that the godfather is like the preeminent example of this so man in a whole stories according to their calculations and and algorithms and all that are while while they're not the most liked of these different types they are the most talked about and they also tend to perform better at the box office than movies in any other category on average so the average cost of one of these types of movies according to the again this is only like a six thousand film uh script um uh subject group yeah Yeah, analysis exactly um so it's not like a a definitive thing but anyway and to give you an idea uh, they make 600 movies a year so right that's only about a 10-year uh sampling right so according to their research the man in the whole stories are they 
the average cost of them is about 40 million to make, but they earn about 54 million on average. So, I mean, to me, like a, a, for a few things immediately jumped out at me when I was reading about this. So first of all, movies that cost around $40 million to make, as has been exhaustively detailed over the past 10 or 15 years, are increasingly rare in Hollywood because the industry has basically turned to making micro budget movies or huge budget blockbusters for its, you know, for its business model, basically. Uh, and then, uh, yes, ben, of course, if they yes. were following this system, Hollywood, Hollywood could be printing money. They should be making these mid budget $40 million <laughs> man in a hole films like all next year is just going to be man in a hole. Like that's going to be the title of the big film of the year, man in a hole. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I would not be surprised if some studio head saw this and was like, let's do it. Let's give it a shot. But I mean, th that's the thing, though. The man in the whole categorization, the description of that category, the fall followed by a rise. That's basically the template for storytelling in the Western world. Like a protagonist is wandering around, going about their business. They encounter a challenge and then they overcome that challenge. It, when you boil it down so hard to its, uh, its you know, prime um, uh degrees like that these elements it, it <laughs> you lose any nuance it's like you can narrow that down you can narrow any movie down to wait uh, wait i need to hear what what are some of the other like uh you know movie categories that uh sure make money yeah so they say that uh, rags to riches is one like the ongoing emotional rise as seen in the Shawshank Redemption. There's one that's the inverse of that, which is riches to rags, which is the ongoing emotional fall like you see in Psycho. Um, another one is the Cinderella, which is a rise followed by a fall, followed by a rise as seen in the movie Babe. <laughs> so, I mean, th there are a couple other ones here. Um, but really, I mean, the idea of like data analyzation to figure out this uh, mystical formula that unlocks the key to Hollywood success is uh, is not a new idea. Ryan Kavanaugh, who's the former head of Relativity Media, tried to build an entire studio on the idea of of using these, you know, of crunching the numbers to basically predict what kinds of movies audiences are going to like. And yeah, he had a few hits here and there, but Relativity ended up going bankrupt twice. <laughs> so it, it's not, um, you know, it, it, it might be tempting to look at this as like a get rich quick kind of scheme of like, oh, all we have to do is do this. But, you know, there's so much more that goes into making a movie than just uh, just these boilerplate templates like this. This makes me want to look at like the list of the, you know, worst grossing film or, you know, the most disappointing at the box office films of all time and see how many actually fit into this category. Like right. uh, John Carter, a famous Disney bomb. Wouldn't wouldn't that fit the man in the hole? I guess maybe. I, I think, yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> but I guess yeah, it, was made, it was made for $264 million instead of 40 That was Disney's mistake, obviously. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> okay, anyways, uh, let's move on to uh, the Coen brothers, who have apparently re-edited a TV series into a movie. Chris, tell us about that. Uh, yeah, the Coen brothers, last year it was announced they were doing a Netflix TV series called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is my favorite name to say now. And uh, it was originally going to be a six-episode anthology for Netflix. Um, now, it's still coming to Netflix, but instead of being six parts, the Coen brothers have decided to just re-edit it into a film. Um and this will also be just in time for the Venice Film Festival, where it's going to premiere. So 
rather than get this in TV format, we're getting it in a film format. And I'm, I'm a little conflicted here because, you know, on one level, I'm very excited for a new Coen Brothers movie. But on another level, I was kind of looking forward to the idea of a Coen Brothers TV series. And I'm hoping one day maybe they'll put out like a Blu-ray or something with all the footage they ended up cutting out to get this down into a film. Now, do we know, has this ever happened before? What, a TV show edited into a movie? Yeah. Um, David Lynch technically did that with Mulholland Drive. That was originally a pilot, and he went back and added on it and turned it into a film. So there is that. But uh, I don't know if there's ever been a case where a whole series, a whole season has been edited down into a film. Yeah, it's interesting because I I forget what show it was on Netflix, but um, last year I watched the show. I think it was like a BBC series, and it was like six episodes long, and it was a comedy, so it was like twenty three minutes an episode. And I I binge watched it. I don't even remember what it was, but it ended up being like you know two hours and twenty minutes. And I was like, it's funny that Netflix didn't just like package this together because it was like one whole story and could have turned it into a movie. But I got you know obviously it was uh, directed by different directors. You can't do that. Uh, but um, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm wondering if uh, well, why why did this happen? Like why why. Why did they decide to, to release it as a movie instead of a TV series? They really didn't give any specific reason. I mean, maybe it just wasn't working as a TV series. Um, you know, I guess one of the the good things about Netflix is uh, people who work for them, the creators who work for them, have a lot of freedom. So maybe while shooting and while editing the series, the Coen brothers realize this isn't working and let's make it a movie. Um, uh, they did something similar to this before in the past where they went back and released a director's cut of their first film, Blood Simple. And unlike other director's cuts, which tend to be longer than the theatrical cut, the, the Blood Simple director's cut was actually shorter in that they trimmed a few minutes off it and made it an overall tighter film. So... Uh, maybe that was the case here. Maybe they just didn't like where the, the the TV version was going and decided instead to turn it into a film. Have Have you ever seen th- that director's cut with the audio commentary, Chris? The Blood Sybil one? Yeah. Uh, yes, I have. It's great. I, I believe it's the Coen brothers pretending to be Hollywood executives or something. Yeah, the, there's like a yeah. It's it's they love to just basically mess around with like the, for years they would take credit as like editors for the they would use like a fictional name as an editor for their films, but it was just them editing it. Yeah, no. If if you uh, have that Blood Simple DVD or Blu-ray, I'd go check that out if you haven't, because I I feel like it's one of those special features that many people might overlook because you know it's not on the packaging the filmmaker giving the audio commentary but it, it, it is it is great it is uh it is a piece of art from the coen brothers themselves uh but let's move on to uh some spinoff news uh the men in black spinoff is uh gearing up and we have learned that emma thompson is joining the cast reprising her role from part three ben tell us about it 
Yeah, that's basically all we know from this one is that uh, is that Emma Thompson, who played Agent Zero in 2012's Men in Black 3, is going to be coming back to reprise that role. So we know that um, Agent Zero is, is sort of like the leader of the Men in Black. She took over that role after uh, Rip Torn, who played Zed in the first two movies. Um, I guess he died in the third entry. It's been so long since I've seen Men in Black 3. I, I think I saw it once in the theaters and, and basically just completely forgot about that movie. I, I know it involved time travel. There's a lot of weird stuff going on in that film. Um, but Emma Thompson is great. I mean, any movie that that uh, adds her, I mean, like she automatically makes everything better. Um, she's an Oscar winning actress and Oscar winning screenwriter. This is, I think, the second time that she will be uh, returning to play the same character in a popular film franchise because she was also in the Harry Potter movies. Um, so uh, we know that she's the leader of the men in black and also Liam Neeson has been added to the cast of this spinoff. We knew about that, but he is going to be playing the leader of the London branch of the men in black. And this uh, spinoff or reboot or whatever it's ultimately going to be, um, is uh, supposed to take the action to a more global scale. Um, so maybe the two of them are going to, uh, I don't know they, they could have a, a big business meeting about how they're going to run the men in black on a, on a global scale. I don't know exactly if they're going to, um, interact in person or share the screen, but if they do, it'll make a nice, uh, nice little reunion for them because they were both in love actually back in 2003. Now, did, did we always know that this is going to be set in the same universe? I mean, I, it is a spinoff, but it's kind of a bit of a reboot as well. Did, did yeah, we know I, that there was going to be connections? I, I, I mean, I, I think they they have not said whether or not Will Smith or Tommy Lee Jones, the stars of the the first three movies, are going to be coming back. But I would not rule out a quick cameo from them. I think uh, just to, I, I guess because I haven't said it on this episode, Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson are leaving the cast in this new edition. Um, but, yeah, I, I think this is the first official connection we have between this new movie and the uh, the original trilogy. So I don't know. I mean, that certainly opens the door for the possibility of a cameo before Will Smith or Tommy Lee jones um and and now that uh yeah now that we know it's 100 percent set in that same universe i'm gonna predict right now that will smith appears either in one of the final two scenes of the movie or in an after credit or in credits scene that, that that's my prediction uh, all right mark it down yeah um let's move on to hamilton which might be headed to the big screen sooner than we think but not as we had hoped chris tell us about it um, yes. Uh, you know, everyone knows Hamilton. It's a huge hit. It's a, a Pulitzer Prize winning musical. Everyone knows what it is, even if you don't follow Broadway news. And uh, as is the case with most big musicals, it's only a matter of time before Hollywood comes calling and turns this into a big movie. And we had assumed it would take a while for this just because the film, uh, the, the play is still running and they don't want to, you know, have it have the movie competing with the play. They want to get as many people at the play as possible. But now comes word there is going to be a film sooner than we thought, but it's not going to be the big Hollywood, uh, you know, remake of the play. Instead, um, right before Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator and original star of Hamilton, left, you know, the original cast along with pretty much all the original cast started to leave in 2016. Um, they recorded a, a, a live performance with the entire original Broadway cast doing the play from beginning to end. And at the time that was recorded, no one knew when or where that was going to pop up. We just knew it was being recorded for posterity. But now uh, word has it that uh, 
pretty much every studio in Hollywood is in a bidding war trying to get the rights to this with the intention to release it uh, in either 2020 or 2021 in theaters. And, 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 it, and it'll only cost you $200 a ticket for front row. <laughs> <laughs> or you yes. can enter that lottery to go, go to your local AMC and see it for free. I, I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm joking. Um, yes. Um, uh, and the uh, the story came from the Wall Street Journal. And the, the, the word is that the the rights to this could sell for up to fifty million dollars, which is a lot of money for just which is, is essentially a recorded play. Like that's a huge amount of money, but uh, obviously everyone wants a piece of Hamilton. That that's insane. But you know, I know Hamilton is uh, touring right now, but a lot of people have not gotten the chance to see it unless they traveled, you know, to New York, uh, L.A., you know, any of the the big cities that have gotten it, and even then. You know, tickets were not the easiest or cheapest to come by. So, uh, you know, I know uh, this is good because it will bring this play to the masses. But I, I think I think what I'm waiting for is the, the big screen adaptation of Hamilton. Do you think do you think releasing the play in theaters and especially on this scale of, you know, they're hoping to at least if they're selling it for 50 million, they're hoping to at least make what? 150 million dollars at the box office with this or uh, it's you break even because, you know, theaters take, you know, upwards of 50 percent. Um, do you think releasing the play in theaters will prevent us from ever getting an actual narrative adaptation of Hamilton in theaters. No, I, I think it, it's pretty much a, a given that that's going to happen. Um, you know, you know, one of the stipulations in this sale is that whoever buys it, they can't release it until 2020 or 2021. And that's very specific because, you know, they want the play to, you know, have, uh, you know, I guess, a last hurrah before they uh, unveil it to everyone. But uh, the Hamilton is a, a money-making machine, and I don't think it, that's going to stop anytime soon. And, but, but you think if, if tons of people go to see this, if this makes $300 million at the domestic box office, do you think studios are still going to be jumping to to make that, uh, you know, non-stage version of that for the fil- for the silver screen? I do, because I also think there's going to be like a weird stigma with this where people are going to be like, "Ugh, I don't want to go see a filmed play. I want to see a movie. So I feel like there is going to be, a, you know, an audience out there who would rather see the the Hollywood version. I mean, we might not get it for many years. Like, you know, the Hollywood version of Les Miserables took a long time. Um, we're just getting the Cats movie now and that debuted on Broadway many years ago. So In the like 80s, I think. Yeah, so we might not get it for another 10 years, but it, it's going to happen. And like Wicked, I think, has been in development, a Wicked movie for a long, long time. And that one still hasn't come to the big screen yet. And this isn't the first time that this has happened. Obviously, Fathom events have uh, often brought, uh, you know, stage musicals to the big screen for one night events that are priced at a higher price ticket price. But uh, it sounds like this would be a wide release, uh, you know, bringing Hamilton to the masses. Uh, Let's move on, though, to Enter the Dragon. Turns out uh, they're trying to remake this one as well with Deadpool 2 director David Leach. Ben, tell us about it. 
Yeah, so directors like Spike Lee and Brett Ratner over the years have tried to remake Enter the Dragon, but it seems like David Leitch, who just directed uh, Deadpool 2 and Atomic Blonde, is the latest director to uh, potentially give it a shot. So I, I think from uh, from this report from uh, Deadline, they don't have a writer attached to this yet, but Leitch, who uh, also directed uh, or co-directed the first John Wick movie, and he was a, a stunt guy. He's also directing uh, Hobbs and Shaw, which is the first Fast and Furious spinoff movie. Uh, he is now attached to direct this film. So, I mean, he's obviously a guy who knows a lot about um, fight sequences and, and stunt choreography and stuff like that. So he makes a certain amount of sense for an Enter the Dragon remake. Um, I, I know that a lot of people probably think that the idea of remaking Enter the Dragon, which is like a, a 1973 Bruce Lee martial arts movie, um, might seem like a, like a sacrilegious idea. But I haven't seen the movie in a long, long time. But from what I remember of it, it's basically just like a martial arts competition movie. Um, and we've seen so many of those over the years that it, it almost feels like this movie has been remade anyway. Um Chris, I think when this came up, you said something about how uh, Bruce Lee was the reason that this movie uh, succeeds, right? Yeah, I, it's it's an, a weird idea to me. I mean, like you said, this idea has essentially been remade before. I mean, the Mortal Kombat movie is pretty right. much a remake of this idea, but it just feels wrong to call it Enter the Dragon. Like, I get why they would do that because it has you know brand recognition and that's all anyone cares about, but it just feels wrong because that it just feels like that belongs so entirely to Bruce Lee and his legacy. Like I'm all for a, a martial arts movie directed by David Leach because that guy is great at directing a action, but just, you know, just call it something else. You can still have dragon in the title. Just call it something else. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, when I was doing some research for this uh, article, I saw that um, Kurt Sutter, who is the creator of the FX show sons of anarchy was actually looking to make uh, a an enter the dragon remake his directorial debut back in 2009 so this is like almost 10 years ago and that version of the movie would have been called awaken the dragon and it would have starred rain the korean pop star who was in movies like uh, ninja assassin he, he was like a big deal for one second in the late <laughs> the late 2000s um but uh but yeah we don't know anything about a title uh for this one or or a plot or how you know if it's going to be more of a sequel or a, a remake, a, a traditional remake or, or, you know, set in the same universe or any of that stuff. So yeah, maybe, maybe he'll take that uh, a page from Kurt Sutter's playbook and call it awaken the dragon. See, see, I'm not a huge Bruce Lee fan. I, I just never got into the martial arts world. Uh, by the way, it was weird seeing on the Comic-Con show floor, one of the big like exclusives that everybody was reselling was like a Bruce, Lee, a gold Bruce Lee Funko pop um, that everybody was trying to flip. Um, but uh, I don't know. So to me, I don't have I don't believe it's like sacrilegious to remake Enter the Dragon. Just to me, it just seems like what's the point if you don't have Bruce Lee like that? That is the whole thing about that movie is Bruce Lee. And if you don't have a martial arts star of his caliber, what what is the point? Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's going to be a launch pad for uh, a new sort of up and coming person. Uh, Leech, like I said, he used to be a stuntman, so he probably knows a lot of people in that world who haven't gotten the the shot at stardom that uh, that maybe they that maybe he might be able to provide 
for them. So um, I don't know. There, there's That's a, a very valid question, Peter. We'll have to see what they do with casting for this one. Okay, let's move on to our, our last and final story. This is something that hit last week while we were at Comic-Con and uh, Ben was covering uh, while we were all in San Diego. And that is that they are rebooting Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, with a black lead and with Josh Whedon involved. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so Monica Usuwu-Breen, if that's not how you pronounce your name, Monica, I apologize. Uh, she's the creator of a, a show called Midnight Texas, is going to serve as a writer, executive producer, and the showrunner of a Buffy the Vampire Slayer reboot uh, TV series. So Joss Whedon is also on board as an executive producer. Whedon, who you know created the Buffy movie and the long-running original TV show that was on, uh, I think it was on the WB and UPN uh, back in the day. This show ran from 1997 to 2003, and it starred Michelle Geller. Um, yeah, we, we don't really know much about the show other than that the new version will feature a black female lead. Uh, it's in development right now, and the show is going to be pitched around to a bunch of different networks this summer. There's no official script yet, but the, the reboot is said to be uh, contemporary, building on the mythology of the original. So again, the, there's potentially the, the door is open for cameos and, and things like that from uh, previous cast members. Um, Joss Whedon just recently signed a deal to write, direct, and be the showrunner of a new HBO show called The Nevers. Um, but uh, according to Deadline, he will definitely be creatively involved with this Buffy reboot, and he's already working with uh, Monica Osuwu-Breen on um, bringing it to life right now. Now, were either of you big fans of the Buffy the Vampire series? I was a huge fan, I, and I still am. Uh, so, so how do you feel about this, Chris, being a huge fan? You know, it's weird. When it was announced, I was like, well, that's surprising, but I don't have any problem with the idea. And then um, uh, Candace Frederick wrote an article for us about how um, the title of the article is Talent of Color Do Not Need What Do Not Need a White TV Show and Film Hand Me Downs. And I hadn't even considered that, but that's a pretty interesting point that, you know, why just reboot this? Why not create something new for a black female lead? But I don't know. It's it's weird because, you know, I'm a I'm a big Buffy fan and I know Joss Whedon has sort of fallen out of favor due to some really terrible personal decisions he's made. But, you know, I, I think that show holds up. I don't really know. I don't really know how to feel about this. I like I said, I have no problem with the idea. I'm not like, oh, my God, how dare you reboot this? But it does seem a little strange. You know, I, I do love that Hollywood is getting more diversive and realizing that people want uh, to, to see more diverse casts on the big screen. It does seem to me like, you know, after Twilight became huge, you know, the whole, you know, strong, you know, quote unquote, strong female lead, you know, in, in these like teen ad adaptations, like Hollywood, like, you know, sucked onto that concept. And, uh, you know, it's obviously, you know, Wonder Woman is helped helping facilitate you know hollywood to greenlight more movies that have uh female uh lead characters and even like superhero roles um and now with like the success of black panther i feel like <laughs> everybody's like oh there's another market that we have not been you know catering to people actually want to see uh that th that kind of person in, in in the forefront of this kind of show i just wish um 
I just wish it wasn't so icky the way that they they just realized like oh there's a marketplace there like it, it should just be more organic. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, there shouldn't be a reboot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but like I I think I'm basically agreeing with what Candace and Chris said uh, that you know why not come up with a why not find uh, you know a, a a black female actress that that you believe in and create a show around them an original show um i mean i do i do on one hand appreciate that hollywood is going in this direction but i just wish it wasn't it feels like they're only doing it because they're jumping on the train the trend train of and they see money at the end of it's the, like the tracks like diversity for the sake of showiness is basically what you're saying like they're just they're just doing oh, it because they, oh, I don't think it's, oh no i don't think it's showiness i think that they see that there's a lot of money in it and like i right. think like they're like oh you know let's just uh and there was a trend for a while there of uh let's remake movies and you know gender swap and that, that's still happening and you know it, it it's been successful and it's been you know they've had failures like ghostbusters I just feel like when you approach things in that way, you're approaching it. Hey, when you approach any story or movie in the way of like, let's do this for the money and not because this is a cool story concept idea, I feel like you're approaching it in the wrong way. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be. They, they definitely should. There should be more uh, diverse stars on our TVs and our big screens. I just wish, uh, you know, I wish I wish Ocean's 8, which I thought was an OK movie didn't have to be an oceans movie do you know what i mean like it, it feels it felt kind of calculated in a way that i didn't like and maybe more people didn't show up because like it just feels like a studio is trying to be like oh there's a female audience out there we'll take advantage of them yeah i think the answer to that uh, is probably just for people to get out and actually support the things that um that represent what they want to see you know like the yeah. like stop going to see transformers 7 and instead <laughs> go see um you know a, a mid-budget movie that that stars a bunch of women or something you know if you want to see more movies that star women you know what i mean like that kind of i, I think money talks is basically yeah. what it, it, it boils it, down to I don't know. I don't know what my frustration is because obviously this is a business and obviously these studios are in it to make money and not art. But I I just wish that it started with the art and then, you know, good art gets the, you know, makes money. Most, I think a lot of the time. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's too uh, optimistic. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, uh, I think we just have to put our hopes in the people who are actually in the trenches making this stuff and and hoping that they can smuggle some of the art into the commerce, right? Like that's the that's the big hope I think is is uh things even if they look like um like cash grabs, maybe they'll always turn out better than we think because the uh they may not have been greenlit based on um, you know, the the great creative original idea, but maybe uh, those things can be applied to the the template afterwards. Yeah. Um, one last question for you, Chris. Uh, since you were a fan of the original Buffy and Joss Whedon is going to be involved in this, do, do you, are you more excited because he's involved or would you be more excited to have, you know, some hip upcoming showrunner uh, involved in this? It's, you know, that's a little, that's conflicting too, because like I said, you know, I, I know Joss Whedon is pretty much <laughs> canceled now, as the kids say, based on, you know, his, his personal stuff. But, you know, I do think he's a good writer. I do think his work on Buffy is great, but I also feel like 
if this is a Buffy for a new generation, he probably shouldn't be involved. It should be someone, you know, completely new, someone taking it in a new direction because, uh, I don't know. I feel like the way to approach this is not so much as a reboot, just have this new character just be another slayer. Like don't call it Buffy the vampire slayer because on the show Buffy, like the final season, they introduced basically like hundreds and hundreds of slayers. So, you know, why not make this like a spinoff instead of just calling it Buffy? But uh, I don't know. I'm guessing that's what they're going to do, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know how you would involve cameos from, you know, the Buffy mainstays if if this was, uh, if you're rebooting Buffy in that way. But uh, we'll have to see. We'll keep an eye on the, out on this. I will link to Candace's piece in the show notes. And uh, all the stories we talked about today will be linked in the show notes. Chris, where can people find more of your work online? Uh, I'm at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at Evangelista 413 Ben, where can we find you? I am also at SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. You can find me on all social media at Slash Film. Uh, this podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at SlashFilm.com. And uh, please go rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.